Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Teddy Kupfer, an associate editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is Charles McElwee. Charles is the editor of Real Clear Pennsylvania, which launches this month and covers the goings-on in the Keystone State. He's a former City Journal editor who still writes for us from time to time, his latest contribution being a long print feature about the Lehigh Valley, which has become the key warehousing and logistics hub of the Northeast. And Charles is also from Hershey, Pennsylvania, or thereabout, which happens to be 20 minutes from my hometown of Camp Hill. So Charles, thanks very much for joining me. Thanks, Teddy. That's right. We grew up on the opposite ends of the Susquehanna River. You were a West Shore kid. I was an East Shore kid. So good to talk to you today. Appreciate it. So let's dive right into your print story, which is about the Lehigh Valley. You know, the region includes the cities of Allentown, Bethlehem, and Easton, and spans, as you note, more than 700 square miles of residential neighborhoods, suburbia, rural locales, and farmland. It was once an industrial powerhouse, uh, which began to boom after the discovery of anthracite coal and later became the home of Bethlehem Steel. Now it boasts a flourishing 21st century industrial economy that centers around logistics. Surging demand for quick delivery makes the region an ideal location to, to distribute goods throughout the East Coast. And this has boosted the region's jobs, property values, and tax revenues. So why don't you tell a little bit about how this transformation unfolded and what the region looks like today? Yes, Teddy. So this region is really um, a global hub for industrial facility growth. And if anything, it's continuing its lawn tradition in terms of uh, fueling and, uh, industrial America. And that goes back, as you noted, to the early 19th century with the discovery of anthracite coal northwest of the Lehigh Valley and the Lehigh River which runs through the valley itself that supplied coal to the New York and Philadelphia markets. And the region itself became uh, this booming center uh, thanks to coal and ultimately Bethlehem steel, which emerged in the late 19th century. And then by World War II uh, had employed 30,000 people in the Allentown, Bethlehem and Easton area. So really, this is a region that benefits from uh, both geological and geographical serendipity. And thanks to that, it became in recent years this center for warehousing and logistics growth. So really, post-Great Recession, you really saw the emergence of warehouses in the Lehigh Valley. And today, the warehousing and logistics industries, they employ about 30,000 people, which is almost essentially equal to what Bethlehem Steel employed after the war. And it's within one hour of New York Metro, um, New York City, for perspective, Walmart does not have a store in New York City. And therefore, the nation's largest retail market, when when people order from Walmart, it's a Lehigh Valley warehouse that supplies the goods that serves New York City. So that just is one illustration of the importance that of the Lehigh Valley to Metro New York, but also to the East Coast, because this region is within one truck shift in terms of supplying 100 million people across the coast. 
You know, this is really, in part, a story about a region transitioning from heavy industry in the 20th century to something else, while still keeping its economy, including its labor markets, intact. Many post-industrial regions have struggled to enact this transition successfully, and their failure has, of course, been an important part of the country's social political history over the last 50 or so years. So how did the Lehigh Valley manage to pull off what seems to have been a relatively smooth transition? Is it just an accident of, as you mentioned, favorable location, natural resources, and other attributes that may not be generalizable? Or is there an institutional and public policy dimension to this success from which other locales might learn? Well, geography doubtless played an essential role in the Lehigh Valley's resilience. But in addition to that, the Lehigh Valley is really a story of regional coordination. And this was even the case during the Great Depression when uh, Bethlehem City uh, marketed itself to become the Christmas City, a tourism destination. Um, And then after World War II, amid uh, numerous strikes, Lehigh Valley civic leaders began to forecast the day that Bethlehem Steel would no longer be around. And that indeed happened. And But they, they really rolled out a decades-long economic development effort to ensure that the valley itself was well-prepared for whatever turbulence would occur at the local economic level. So first we had the Lehigh Valley Industrial uh, Park uh, nonprofit economic development organization And fast forward to, let's say, 2001, when Bethlehem Steel had uh, filed for bankruptcy. This was just a few years after the steel mills closed. Well, the city of Bethlehem itself, 20% of the land in the city was the the steel mills. Well, they converted that brownfield site, the largest brownfield site in the nation, into a Lehigh Valley Industrial Park. And that industrial park today includes warehouses that employ people in the region. Um, but it, it really even transcends warehousing, Teddy. I mean, the local healthcare system is robust and has expanded in recent years, the Lehigh Valley Health Network and St. Luke's. And then there's also a very storied regional university uh, network. So you have uh, local Protestant um groups that had settled in the, in the valley in the 18th century, they were really focused on building colleges. So today you have, for example, uh, what was a, a, the German Lutheran College, Muhlenberg. You have um, Moravian College. Bethlehem was a, a commune for Moravians, a uh, Czech Protestant sect that settled there in the 1700s. And you, you also have Lehigh uh, University, which was founded by Asa Packer, who had established the Lehigh Valley Railroad, which ran through the region and also supplied coal uh, throughout um, the state and into other metro areas. So yes, there's this regional coordination, Teddy, but in addition to that, we're, we're seeing now regional coordination, a sense of uh, a bipartisan consensus that the, the region itself is now saturated with warehousing and there actually needs to be uh, reforms to the state municipal planning code to ensure sensible warehousing development moving forward. Right. So on that note, you know, this transformation hasn't been universally hailed by residents. Uh, as you write in the story, all that warehousing space has to go somewhere. 
And sometimes that somewhere is the region's green spaces. Farmland has been swallowed up in some cases by industrial development. Uh, and then if you add to that inflows of workers from nearby cities enabled by remote work, you have a potentially uh, tense situation. So can you describe a bit how locals have reacted to this these changes, which carry benefits, but also appear to come with some costs? Yes. Yeah, so in, in Pennsylvania, every municipality has to reserve land for every form of development. It goes back to the 1960s with the state municipal planning code that was passed by the legislature. And it's really um, a, a policy that is frozen in time. So in other words, legislators in the 1960s couldn't forecast the, the dawn of warehousing development. And in the Lehigh Valley, you have 62 municipalities that are confronting overdevelopment of warehousing and the attendant truck traffic congestion. And just the fact that a warehouse, for example, can go up next to a residential neighborhood, which we're seeing in places locally like Upper McCungie Township uh, outside of Allentown. And this is a persistent issue, uh, an acute problem, one that uh, residents are now expressing concern and even dismay about. And it, it's really a catch-22 because this is an economic force. The warehousing logistics sector has played a crucial role in the Valley's economy. It contributes to the fact that it has an approximately $43 billion GDP that surpasses some states like Wyoming. But it's uh, the reality also is that, right, we're losing this all this farmland. And this was the colonial breadbasket of America. Uh, some of the richest, richest, most fertile farm soil in the world can be found in the Lehigh Valley. It's what drew German farmers in the 1700s. There's a long tradition of agriculture in the valley. And the reality is, in spite of um, some successful preservation efforts of farmland, much of that land is going away. But we're, we're actually seeing this new trend that the Lehigh Valley market itself is now saturated with warehousing. They're running out of space. So they're now looking, uh, developers are looking at, at places like uh, the, the, the Hazleton area where more than 10 million square feet of warehousing is proposed around six square mile radius, which is a city limits, or in the Harrisburg area where you see really a massive warehousing uh, development emerging around Carlisle and the Route 81 uh, corridor. But um, if anything, Teddy, what happened was the commercial real estate sector is confronting this crisis. So in cities, you have all this vacant office space. It, it, it's no longer um, in the commercial real estate sector's interest to focus on that form of development. I mean, the Philadelphia alone last year uh, in, in the city, uh, employers vacated approximately 887,000 square feet of office space. So as a result, the, this sector is now turning to warehousing, whether it's leasing warehousing space in the Valley, other parts of Pennsylvania, but also New York City. We're, we're seeing uh, more than 50 Amazon warehouses have gone up in Metro New York since the pandemic, for example, Red Hook in Brooklyn is becoming a center for logistics and warehousing. And we're even seeing the emergence of micro warehousing, just smaller fulfillment centers that supply in uh, online consumers. And it's no longer next day delivery, it's 
we'll, we'll get that to you in a few hours. So this sector, while the downside, of course, is a loss of space, it's an inescapable sector. But I think, at least in Pennsylvania, there's this concern among municipal leaders that there, there are necessary reforms that need to be made in Harrisburg for sensible and balanced development while also supporting the sector. So let's switch gears a bit and look across the Keystone State. You're editor of the newly launched Real Clear Pennsylvania, as I mentioned at the outset of this show. Uh, and Pennsylvania will be home to a number of major primary and uh, general races this election season that some observers nationally have pegged as bellwethers. With Pat Toomey retiring from the Senate, the primaries uh, to, to replace him in both parties have been competitive, with Connor Lamb and John Fetterman occupying moderate and populist lanes over, over on the Democratic side. Meanwhile, for the Republicans, you have former Bridgewater CEO David McCormick and uh, TV personality and Dr. Mehmet Oz jockeying for both position and Donald Trump's endorsement. And then there's Lou Barletta, the veteran Hazleton poll and immigration restrictionist, mounting a race for the Republican gubernatorial nomination. So what are you going to be watching for this election season uh, in these races, You know, both for what they say about the nation's political trajectory, but also about the political evolution of Pennsylvania itself? Right. Uh, this is an issue that I've ex uh, I've extensively written about this uh, political realignment in Pennsylvania for City Journal, including a piece last year about the twilight of the blue collar Democrat, which we are really seeing in the state. So, um, I mean, there's a lot to cover, Teddy, but I mean, on, on the Senate side, yes, on the, uh, when it comes to Democrats, you have Connor Lamb, who's trying to follow the Bob Casey playbook. He's from a dynastic uh, Democratic family in Pittsburgh. His grandfather was a, a legislative leader in Harrisburg in the 1970s. His uncle is a local political leader. Um, he's trying to take that centrist path, one that Casey successfully followed in 2006 when Republicans were deeply unpopular in Pennsylvania. And of course, many voters remembered Casey's father, Bob Casey, who served as Pennsylvania governor from uh, 86 to 94. But, um, and then you have John Fetterman, who is from the left, a populist, who is even trying to campaign hard in rural parts of Pennsylvania. Um, all polls currently indicate that Fetterman currently holds the lead on the Democratic side. Um, and then the, on the Republican side, polls indicate that McCormick presently has a lead. McCormick, yes, was in charge of the uh, world's largest hedge fund, Bridgewater. Uh, he is backed by a, a number of Trump alumni. And uh, he, he is himself from a, another uh, political family in, in Pennsylvania. His father was the first uh, chairman of the state higher education uh, system. And under Thornburg, uh, who was a previous uh, Republican governor in the 80s, um, Dr. Oz is not from Pennsylvania. He's trying to win, but and he's getting accused of being a carpetbagger, as is McCormick. But of course, there's a long tradition in Pennsylvania of carpetbaggers prevailing, whether that's uh, Ed Rendell uh, as governor. He was originally from the Upper West Side. 
Uh, even Pat Toomey, he grew up in Rhode Island, now a Lehigh Valley resident. And uh, John Hines, we, we associate his name with the iconic condiment company, but he actually grew up in San Francisco. So uh, I don't think that's the issue here per se. The, the broader issue, of course, are who, who can speak to the concerns of Pennsylvanians. And if anything, the Democratic Party has not spoken to the concerns of Pennsylvanians in, in recent years. And even though Biden won in twenty twenty won the state in 2020, for example, uh, down ballot, Republicans have been quite successful, including in statewide row office and appellate judge races. So we're seeing this realignment, Teddy, where you have places like Luzerne County, which had a, a more than 30,000 Democratic voter registration advantage, even when Trump won in 2016, that's down to 12,000. And that creates an opening for gubernatorial candidates um, on the Republican side, um, very competitive primary crowded field. That includes, as you noted, Lou Barletta, who is from Hazleton and really um, was at the forefront in terms of seeing some of the uh, social and economic concerns that are pervasive among working class regions in the state. But they had to have this battle of voting margins with places like suburban Philadelphia, including Chester County, which was reliably Republican in even recent years, but now is uh, competitive, if not uh, blue. And there, there's a lot at play, but uh, it, all signs indicate that this, is, this remains a purple state and places like the Lehigh Valley, uh, where this warehousing explosion has occurred, re remain prime bellwether competitive territory in terms of it could go either way. And it could be a strange year. I mean, we're, we're really seeing, for example, I think if anything, the Democrats are now where Republicans were in 2006, deeply unpopular and on the losing side on many issues. And that creates an opportunity for GOP candidates. But uh, this is a strange state. Uh, we have a very mercurial voting base. There could be a scenario where it's a banner Republican year, a wave year nationally, but uh, Democrats can still prevail in certain scenarios. Well, I'd say that brings it full circle. Listeners, don't forget to check out Charles's work on the City Journal website. We will link to his author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter at City Journal and on Instagram at City Journal underscore MI. And Charles is on Twitter as well, and we will provide a link in the transcript. As always, if you like what you heard on the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. And Charles, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Teddy. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.